Hello and welcome to this message from Skip Heitzig of Calvary Church. We pray this message strengthens your relationship with the Lord. And if it does, let us know. Email us at mystory@calvaryabq.org. And if you'd like to support this ministry financially, you can give online securely at calvaryabq.org slash give. Anytime you travel overseas, you need a passport. It's a document of citizenship denoting your country of origin and permanent residence. When you receive Christ as your Savior, you become a citizen of heaven, meaning that you're a foreigner on this earth. In the message, Show Me Your Passport, Please, Skip shares four characteristics of heavenly citizens. Now, please open your Bible to Philippians chapter 3 as he begins. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians chapter 3, third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Philippians as you get your heart ready to receive what the Lord has for you. Philippians chapter 3. Whenever you travel outside of this country, you're, you're going to need one of these. This is a passport. And the passport designates that you are a citizen of whatever country it is that you were born in. You have citizenship there. And um, you can't just walk from one border into another border and say, I've decided to visit. They're going to ask you, some official is going to say, please show me your passport. Or they might not use the word please. They might just say, passport. And you have to show it to them. It designates where you're from, and then there are certain stipulations about where you're going. Now, when you arrive at an airport in a foreign country, you're going to see two lines, one that will say citizens and one that says non-citizens. And that's because... If you are a citizen of a country, you are afforded certain privileges that non-citizens don't have in any country. If you were to look at the first page of the American passport, it says, The Secretary of State of the United States of America hereby requests all whom it concern to permit the citizen or national of the United States named herein to pass without delay or hindrance and in case of need, to give all lawful aid and protection. Now, let's say that you don't belong to this country, but you want to become a citizen of the United States. You can do that. You can do that by becoming what is called a naturalized American citizen. And there's a process that you would go through in order to become naturalized. And once you go through the process, you then swear an oath in public. And part of the oath reads like this. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. So... Though you may be born elsewhere, not of your own choice, of course, it was the choice of your parents, you can become a citizen of this country by choice and by oath. But by becoming a citizen of this country, you also become a foreigner of every other country. 
course, there are exceptions. There's a thing called dual citizenship, which interestingly wasn't even possible until recently. It was the late 1960s where you could hold dual citizenship. But that's more of a recent development. Effectively, becoming a citizen of one country means you are a foreigner of other countries. Likewise, when you become citizens of heaven, you become foreigners on this earth. This earth is just like a transit lounge in an airport. You're passing through. This isn't where you're going to spend the bulk of your time. You have an eternal home in heaven. With that in mind, let's go to our text, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, what I call the citizenship clause of the book of Philippians. Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often... And now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Now, in calling believers citizens of heaven, that would be meaningful to the Philippians. Here's why. Philippi, though it was about seven to 800 miles away from Rome, if you were born in Philippi, since Philippi was a colony of Rome, any citizen of Philippi was a citizen of Rome. So those in Philippi did not speak the language of Macedonia. They spoke the language of Rome. They wore not Macedonian clothes, but Roman clothes. They were loyal to the Roman government. And when they tucked their children in bed at night, they didn't tell them stories of local heroes. They told their children stories of all the glories of Rome. We too, because we have citizenship in heaven, we're temporarily living in this colony called the earth. That's the metaphor. That's the idea behind Paul's usage of the term. However, there was also another group. They were foreigners of heaven trying to pass themselves off as citizens. They're fakes. They're fake citizens. Now, in uh, the passport, you know, most people don't read these things, but there's fine print in every passport. And it says on one of the pages... It is unlawful for any person other than the original lawful recipient to use this passport. And then there's a little clause that says alteration or mutilation of the passport. And it reads like this. This passport must not be altered or mutilated in any way. Alteration could make the passport invalid and if willful may subject you to prosecution. Now, why would they have to put a warning like that in a passport? Because it's one passport per person. I can't just say, hey, you want to travel? Take this passport. Go ahead. Why spend the money on yours? Just borrow mine. You couldn't do that. And some people would be tempted to take the passport, cut out my picture, and put their picture in it and change the name. 
because there are people who are false citizens. Now, Paul has that in mind also when he writes this paragraph. If you remember, there were religious groups, and Paul makes mention of them along the way so far, that have infiltrated the church. In chapter 1, Paul said, Some, speaking of among them, some among you, preach Christ out of envy and strife, from selfish ambition, not sincerely. As we move on in the letter, he gets stronger by chapter 3. And he says, beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Now he's calling them out. He's speaking specifically of those legalistic Judaizers who were saying, you need to go through the process of circumcision and keeping the law of Moses in order to be saved. Now he gets even stronger. And he calls them the enemies of the cross of Christ. So we're going to be considering both of these groups, citizens and non-citizens, as we work our way through the passage. But let's go back to the passage and allow me to give you some distinguishing characteristics of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. First off, citizens walk with partners. Citizens walk with partners. Verse 17, brethren, join in following my example, Paul writes, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. You know, it almost goes without saying that Paul the Apostle was like a model citizen of heaven. And he says, follow my example. Now, this is not arrogance. Paul is not putting himself on a pedestal above them. We know that because remember in verse 12, he says, not that I have already attained or were already perfected. So he's not placing himself on a pedestal above them. He's placing himself on a platform next to them. And he is saying, just as I am pursuing Christ with all my being, I invite you to join me in that pursuit. This is the Philippians three way of saying what he writes in 1 Corinthians twice, follow me as I follow the Lord, or imitate me as I imitate Christ. Something else. Notice that he moves beyond his own example, and he draws a bigger circle. He says, note those, that's plural, who so walk. And you have us, again plural, as a pattern. So in Paul's mind, he is saying, You can use me, Timothy, Epaphroditus, your own elders and deacons, leaders of the church that he mentions in chapter 1, all of us as partners and as patterns of how to walk. Here's the principle. All of us are foreigners making our journey on a pilgrimage towards heaven. We have a passport because we trust in Jesus, but we need more than a passport. We need partners. We need patterns. We need people who have walked the walk before us or will walk beside us and show us in real time how it's done. Because the journey gets hard sometimes. It gets lonely sometimes on this road. And it's nice to have people around us who will encourage us and show us how to walk. You know, psychologists have said that they can tell a lot about an individual's personality by the way they walk. You know how some people just sort of walk, shuffling their feet? It says a lot about that person. 
You know, just sort of meandering and they get distracted very easily. Other people have a cadence and a gait. They want to go to a certain place. It reveals about their personalities. One time, D.L. Moody was having a conversation with a friend and a man walked by. Moody had never met him, but the friend he was talking to knew him. And as the man walked by, D.L. Moody said to his friend, he must have been in the army. The friend said, well, he was in the army. How did you know? Moody said, I could tell by the way he walked. You know, soldiers walk a certain way, don't they? Cowboys walk a certain way. At least they do in the movies. You know, John Wayne had sort of that swagger, didn't he? You could tell it was him when he was coming. Christians are to have a certain walk. And of course, I'm using that metaphorically. Walk as a way of living, a manner, a lifestyle, living their life. And so as you walk, note those who so walk. You have them as partners. You have them as a pattern. Mark Twain once humorously wrote, Few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. May I just say, we need more of that annoyance. We need the annoyance of good examples around us. Those who have been involved in 12-step programs or those who teach them uh, for alcoholic recovery or addiction recovery will say that an addict cannot recover unless they have a sponsor. And they say it's the sponsor that serves as a motivator, an encourager, a person with whom they can be accountable. And I would say that we can't really mature well, we can't grow well, unless we have a sponsor, a mentor. It's it's called discipleship in the New Testament. We're never to be alone or isolated. We need to walk with others. And citizens will walk with partners. I think we could learn from the elephants. I read an article about an elephant herd in Africa. And to thin out the herd, it was growing, it was becoming a little too populous. So to thin out the herd, authorities decided to kill off some of the older males in that herd and relocate the females and the young bull elephants to another area. Now, in the area they moved them to was a herd of white rhinos. And they noticed that once the elephants were in that region, the white rhinos were being killed off, not by poachers, but by elephants. Young bull elephants who were very aggressive and I guess wanted to prove their elephanthood started killing these white rhinos. In fact, the authorities noted it was as if one of the elephants got a gang together and went after tour buses. So they had another problem on their hands. Now, to address that problem, they decided, let's kill off some of the young bull elephants. That didn't really fix things. So what they decided to do is to release a few older males from another area into the troubled neighborhood. And they noticed it fixed the problem. It wasn't long before those young bull elephants got back into line and they discovered that these young elephants don't know how to act from day to day without the example of older elephants. So it's not just in the animal kingdom where that is needed. It's in God's kingdom, in the Christian life. We need to see that life lived in others. Citizens will walk with a set of partners in a pattern. 
Here's the second characteristic. Citizens watch for pretenders. Verse 18, he says, for many walk. The reason we need people who walk well is because many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly or their appetites, whose glory is in their shame and who set their mind on earthly things. You see, not everybody within the borders of a country are citizens. You can have people in the general population, they look like everybody else, but they're not loyal citizens. They're actually hostile to the national interests. And every country knows these people can be a problem. Paul knows it's a problem even within the church. And he goes, you know, I've told you about this before, but now I'm writing this to you. And as I'm writing, I'm weeping. Isn't that a weird word to read in the book of Philippians? We've noted already that this is a letter that 19 times uses the word joy or rejoice. It's the epistle of joy. Nothing could take Paul's joy away. But here Paul says, I'm weeping. He's not weeping for himself. He's weeping for the church because he knows the outcome could be catastrophic. And so he warns them. These are fake citizens. That is, they know the heavenly language, but they're not conformed to heavenly laws. Remember, Jesus said, beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And, predicted Jesus, this will be a problem even to the end of the age. In Matthew 24, when he speaks of the end of the age, he says, many will come in my name and will deceive many. And as you thumb through the New Testament, you find out this is an ongoing issue. You get to the book of Acts, you get to chapter 8. There was a guy named Simon Magus who was a fake believer among the general population of believers in Samaria. Go a few more pages. Acts 13, there was Elamas the sorcerer. Then you get to the 20th chapter of Acts when Paul is about to leave the Ephesian elders. And before he leaves, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing this flock. In fact, men from among your own selves, your own rank, will come in speaking perverse words to draw the disciples to themselves. He knew it would become an issue. As we go on through the New Testament, Paul calls out two people in the church at Ephesus. This is in the book of 1 Timothy named Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom Paul says, whom I have delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Then we get to the writings of Peter, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. 2 Peter has three chapters. Two of those three chapters are totally devoted to the issue of false teachers, false prophets within the church. He says, there are false teachers among you who bring in destructive heresies. Why so many warnings? And I didn't cover them all. There are many more in the New Testament. Why so many? Because it brings up a truth. Scattered among every church are pretenders. They may be sitting next to you right now. Now, I don't say that so you'll give them the evil eye. It must be you. I knew that about you. But that you're aware of it nonetheless. 
Many people can sing the same songs, pray the same prayers, engage in the same activities, and at the same time be pseudo-citizens. Pseudo-citizens. They speak the language of the court, but Christ is not their king. There's no allegiance to Him. And you shouldn't be surprised by this. You know, some of us go, I can't believe that would happen in a church. Really? You shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said that the good seed is sown in the field and it brings up a crop, but the enemy comes along and sows tares among the wheat. And then Jesus even said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So apparently, according to Jesus and Peter and Paul and John and everybody who would contribute to the New Testament understands that wherever there is something true, there is going to be something counterfeit that'll be next to it. Like the Puritan William Gurnall who said, these are people who love God in their mouth, but the world is in their hearts. Notice how Paul writes about them. He says, they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Wouldn't you like to know exactly who he's talking about? Now I say, wouldn't you like to know? I can't be sure exactly what group Paul is referring to because in Philippi, like just about everywhere else in the New Testament early church, there were two groups that were on the opposite end of the spectrum. Both were problematic. One we've already noted were the Judaizers. These were People who said you have to keep Jewish law, go through Jewish ritual in order to be saved, keep circumcision. They were the legalists. On the other hand, there were the Gnostics. And the Gnostics were not legalistic, they were antinomian, that is, having no law at all. And the Gnostics believed that all matter was evil, only the spirit is good, and that you can be saved by aligning your spirit in surrender to God, but you do anything you want with your body, because your body is irredeemable. So in effect, the Gnostics said, as long as in your heart you believe in God and follow Christ, you can live any way you want with your body. That was problematic. So we don't know if he's referring to the legalistic group or the antinomian group, the Judaizers or the Gnostics. Either way, both groups being problematic would fit the description enemies of the cross of Christ. They are a menace. Now, I just want you to look at this for a moment from a little different angle. Those who may be among us and are not true citizens of the kingdom of God, churchgoers, yes, well-meaning, yes, sincere, yes, they'll go along, they'll come to church, they'll sing the songs, but they're not part of the kingdom yet. Instead of saying, get away, how about saying, come closer? How about saying, don't just... Believe with your mouth. How about really believe in your heart? How about having a true conversion? How about coming to Christ and truly believing Him? So instead of seeing them as a menace, we could start to see them as a mission. I'm going to focus my attention. And you know what? Dr. Elton Trueblood noted this. Our main mission field today, as far as America is concerned, is within church membership itself. Even the Billy Graham Association, Billy Graham said a while back, our crusades find the greatest challenge and the greatest response from among church members. 
That's why he would always invite different churches to his crusades. Because he knew a lot of people who came weren't really saved people. But he wanted them to hear the gospel. So the question you need to ask yourself is, are you an imitation citizen? Or are you a true citizen? Has your passport, so to speak, been stamped by the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you applied that personally, authentically, really to your own life? Or are you hiding behind the mask of some religious group or system? So, citizens walk with partners, watch for pretenders. But here's a third. Citizens wait for a place. Verse 20 tells us about that. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice the contrast between verse 19 and verse 20? Verse 18 and 19, he describes the pretenders, and the last thing he says in verse 19 is, who set their mind on earthly things. In contrast to that, but our, or for our citizenship, is in heaven. Let me refresh your memory. When Paul opened this letter, he noted that the Philippian believers had two addresses, physical address, spiritual address to the saints who are in Philippi, in Christ Jesus. You have a physical address, Philippi or Albuquerque. You have a spiritual address, in Christ Jesus. And because you have a spiritual address, you have an eventual address mentioned here. Your eventual address is in heaven. Why do I bring this up? Because this helps answer why we as believers get so excited and preoccupied with heaven. You know, I've been accused by unbelievers. You always talk about heaven. It's like the great escape. You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Well, let me tell you why we're so focused on heaven. Because we're citizens of heaven. It's going to be our eventual home. He says our citizenship is in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at the word citizenship for just a moment. I'm having you look at it because it's the only place in the New Testament Paul uses this word in this manner. The word citizenship is the word in Greek, polituma. Polituma is the Greek word from which we derive our word politics or political affiliation. For our politics are in heaven. For our political affiliation is in heaven. You know, I've noticed something about politics. It always divides people. You could have a conversation even even among believers. If we started loving on each other and singing together and stuff like we're doing now, if I brought up a political issue, I would divide this nice, happy gathering. Always happens. It divides families, divides believers. And... As I grow in the Lord, I am becoming less political and hopefully more spiritual in my outlook. I am much less a Republican, much less a Democrat. And today, when people say, well, what are you? I'm a theocrat. I believe the only hope for this place is when Jesus comes back and rules everything and everyone. Speaking of which, he says... From which, verse 20, we also eagerly wait for the Savior, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice something. Our hope is not in the coming of the Lord. Our hope is in the Lord who is coming. I'm not waiting for an event to bail me out. I'm waiting for a person that I know and love. He's coming back. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. And that intimacy will be fully realized at that point. By the way, one of the ways to tell a person is really a citizen of a kingdom is he or she wants to see the king. They can't wait to see the king. If you're not a citizen of the kingdom of God and you hear a believer say, Jesus is coming soon, that doesn't excite you. First of all, you think they're wacky. But if you were to actually believe in what they said, Jesus is coming, you wouldn't go, oh great. You'd go, oh no. He is? Uh Uh-oh. That's not good news to you. But if you are a citizen of the kingdom, it's like, yes, can't wait to see my king. Now, brings up a question if you are a citizen of the kingdom. How are you waiting for the king? It says we eagerly wait for him. Would that describe you? Are you eagerly waiting for him? Or would you say, well, my waiting for him is sort of like a passive resignation. You know, I've heard Jesus is coming for years. My grandma used to say that. So, yeah, Jesus is coming again. Or do you have a bored disinterest in his coming? You know, a citizen, once that person is a citizen, when they're away from their homeland, they get homesick. First time I traveled overseas, I was so excited to get on an airplane and have my own passport. It's like, see, I got a passport. And I was in that country and I loved trying the food and all the customs. But I was there for like a few months. And uh, the first week I was all geeked and excited and try everything. But you know, after a couple weeks, didn't take long, I started like having dreams of hamburgers and stuff, like American things. And I've gotten better as time has gone on, but I just got sort of homesick. I wanted to have my friends around me again and the things that I was used to. And so it is with us in the kingdom of God. We get homesick. One of the great promises Jesus ever made was, In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place. It's a real place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be with me always. And so we look forward to that. I sort of feel like, especially the older I get, And I know that heaven is a lot closer now than it used to be. And that the road ahead of me is shorter than the road behind me. I sort of of feel like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Remember, she clicked her heels and go, there's no place like home. There's no place like... I feel like saying, there's no place like heaven. There's no place like heaven. That's our home. Question, how do we become heavenly citizens? Easy answer. You trust in Jesus Christ who did the work for you on the cross and He writes your name down, so to speak, in the registry of heaven. I want you to skip ahead a couple verses. Go to chapter 4, verse 3, and just notice the language. He says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers... Now notice this phrase, whose names are in the book of life. 
By the time you get to Revelation, the book of life is called the Lamb's book of life or the book of life of the Lamb. It's given either way. Jesus said to his disciples, Luke chapter 10, Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You trust him and he puts your name down on the log book. So by the time you die, you show up in heaven and say, We've been expecting you. Your name's here. And you're right on time, by the way. Come on in. A few years ago, I had a very distinct opportunity. A friend that I know arranged when we were in Israel once, uh, three of us, to meet with the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, in his office at the Knesset. Now, he's the one that put our names down on the registry. He was sort of like the one who was the go-between. But he arranged it. We were given instructions, be at the Knesset gate, this certain gate at the Knesset, at exactly 2 p.m. on a certain day. We showed up. They looked at the registry. Our names had been written down. They asked for our passport to make sure it wasn't altered or mutilated, that I was the person whose name was on the list. And then they said, please come in. Welcome. Now, I was there in the prime minister of Israel's office, Bibi Netanyahu, not because I decided I wanted to go. Not because I was really sincere. And I think I deserve it. I was there solely on the intercession of another person who put my name down on that registry. That's how I get to heaven. I'm there by the merits of another, the intercession of another, who put my name down in the book of life. So, when you say, why are Christians so interested in heaven? Well, our name is written there. Our Savior lives there. He will return from there. He will take us back to there. Our fellow believers who have died before us are already there, and our inheritance and reward is there. Why shouldn't we look forward to that? Our citizenship is in heaven. However, please see that heaven is much more than a destination. It's a motivation. It should motivate us. Knowing that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life is a motivation for a pure life and a gospel preaching life. John writes this, We know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself, even as He is pure. There's nothing more pure than believing Jesus Christ could come at any moment. When you believe that, when you live with that in mind, it's a motivation because you're about to get involved in some enterprise or with another person and you have this thought, what if Jesus comes now? That'll keep you from doing a lot of stuff or it'll get you involved in doing good stuff. It'll motivate you to say, you know, these people don't know the Lord. I want to make sure they get to heaven. So it's a motivation, not just a destination. So there are the descriptions of a heavenly citizen. Citizens walk with partners, watch for pretenders, and wait for a place. Let me close on a final note. Citizens will get a promotion. I love Paul. I love the fact that he says, you know what, not only are we going to heaven, but let me just put the icing on the cake by saying this. Who, speaking of Christ, who will transform our lowly body 
that it might be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. The NSV, the new skip version, when you get to heaven, this is getting an upgrade. You're going to get upgraded. Not only are you going to change locations, you're going to change looks. You know, people say, well, how am I going to look in heaven? Easy answer, better. Much better. You're going to get the body you always dreamed of. Paul's word, you'll be transformed. Pole after pole that I've read has asked people this question. If you could change one thing about your life, what would it be? The typical answer is something to do with bodily appearance. If I could change one thing about my life, I want to be shorter or taller or thinner or... This or that. I would say hair color, but you can change that five times before the end of the day. (laughs) They want to change something about their outward appearance. And this body image consciousness has even leaked into the young people. Our kids are worried about it. There was a little boy named Johnny who always sucked his thumb, and his mom wanted to break him of the habit. So one day he was sucking his thumb, and she said, Johnny... What good thing could possibly be gotten from you doing that? And he took his thumb out and held it up and he said, Well, it is non-fattening. <laughs> so I suppose that's an upside. But one day your dream will come true. Every citizen of the kingdom of heaven will get a resurrected, glorified body. That is better than any facelift, any skin cream, any Botox, any diet program, any facial reconstruction or stretching. And it's all free. You'll be transformed. He will transform. Now notice what he says. Our lowly body. So just think about this for a moment. Especially you who are young and you're working really hard and looking really good and you work out, you're a personal trainer, and you want to show the world how to do it right. I applaud you for that. Please, you keep us all in line. But you have but a moment to really enjoy that. The truth is, your body is a lowly body. You don't believe me? Just wait. It won't take long to convince you, trust me. The King James is even stronger, who will change our vile body. Or the NASB says, our body of humility or our body of humiliation. So enjoy it for now, but it is a lowly body. But notice verse 21, the word transformed. I'm drawing your attention to that because there's a word in Greek that he uses here, and we get another English word from it. I'm going to say the Greek word, and then you'll, you'll hear the English. Metaschematici is the word. Transform. Meta schematici. We get the word schematic. Did you hear it? Meta schematici. We get the word schematic. So when you get to heaven, it's as if the upgrade you get will be a whole new schematic that affects inward and outward constitution, a whole renewed physical structure. At the resurrection, which will occur at the rapture of the church, you will get a resurrected body and it will be like Jesus' own resurrected body. Notice what he says, that it will be conformed to his glorious body. Now, when Jesus rose from the dead, 
He had new capabilities. We discover that when the disciples are in a room, the doors are locked, and Jesus just appears in front of the disciples. Locked doors. He didn't crawl through the window. He didn't knock on the door. Let me in. I can't get in. He just showed up. Hi. How did he do that? Well, he had a whole new capability that he didn't have before. This resurrected body was able to do that. And one day he was walking on the road to Emmaus and walking out several miles from Jerusalem, suddenly shows up in that upper room. And then he's in Jerusalem, suddenly he shows up in Galilee. So you're going to have new capabilities in this new body. I did a whole series of messages on this. I won't uh, rehash all that. But imagine having a body that will never wear out. Imagine having a body that never gets tired, never gets exhausted. Imagine having a body that is not susceptible to disease, handicaps, atrophy, and aches and pains. Imagine having a body that never gains weight, never loses hair, never gets wrinkled, hallelujah, never sags or stoops. That glorified, upgraded body is a guaranteed perk for every citizen of heaven. Benjamin Franklin, when he died, he was buried in Boston, Massachusetts. But interestingly, Benjamin Franklin wrote his own epitaph for when he died, years before he died. In fact, he revised it several times. So he must have thought a lot about it. Now, this is not on his gravestone, but it is on a plaque at a wall nearby. His words. The body of Ben Franklin printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here. Food for worms. Yet the work itself shall not be lost, for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, corrected and improved by the author. What a beautiful way of saying this body, lowly body, is going to get an upgrade be revised and improved by the author. So, summing it all up, look around for good examples to follow. Look out for imitations to avoid and look up for Jesus to return. Final question. Are you sure you're a citizen? Are you sure your faith is personally in Jesus Christ alone. Have you trusted in Him? Has there been a time in your life where you've made that, place that trust in Him? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Because if it's not, we could have a swearing-in ceremony right here today. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, how we love the language of Scripture the rich metaphors that Paul and others have used to describe this life that we have, this life of faith with the living God. And we love the idea that we're citizens. We're in this colony, but we're really citizens of heaven. We have an eventual address. Lord, I just want to pray for those who have come to the realization today that they've come... And they've sat and they have sung and they have listened. And some have may even done it for a while. 
But they're not citizens of the kingdom. There's not, a, there's not been a personal trust where it's just genuinely a turning from and a turning to. A turning from the old ways, the old life, and a turning to Jesus. Being given new life. Having our names written in the book of life. Knowing that when we die, we're going to go to heaven. Some people are not sure of that. I'm convinced, Lord, that you want us all to be absolutely sure and convinced that when we die, we're going to see you. And we're going to be right on time and welcomed into your kingdom. That our citizenship, while we live on earth, is firmly fixed in heaven. And Lord, I pray that you would draw some more into your family. With our heads bowed, I want to give you an opportunity if you've never received Christ personally, or if you've heard messages, you've seen altar calls like this, but you've never personally done it, you've not turned to Christ. The Bible says, as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become children of God. And you have to do that. You have to receive Him. There has to be a point in time where you say, yep, I receive Christ as my Savior. I put my trust in Him. Today can be the day. If you're not sure that you're a believer, but you want to be sure, or if you've wandered away and you need to come home, either way, would you raise your hand up so I can see your hand? And you're saying by raising your hand, Skip, pray for me. God bless you, ma'am. Raise your hand up saying, Pray for me. I'm, I'm going to give my life to Christ. I'm going to s- settle this issue once for all. God bless you. Hands up, standing even. And another one. Yes, see your hand. Yes, ma'am. Right up here. Yes, sir. Anybody else? If you're in the family room, raise your hand. Yes. Or in the balcony. Make sure. Make sure that you belong to Him. Anybody else? Just raise that hand up. Father, for each one, we pray. So thankful they're here. So thankful that you love them. We think back to the day we really discovered how deep your love is for us, how amazing your grace is to us. And that we've been given, not because we deserve anything, but by what you've done, we've been given a free ticket to heaven. We didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, we just received it. And how thankful we are that you've convinced some more that salvation and heaven can be their destination. Strengthen them as they follow you and walk after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet. As we sing this last song, I'm going to ask if you raised your hand to get up from where you're standing, find the nearest aisle, stand right up here, where in a moment I'm going to lead you in a prayer to receive Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. Jesus called people publicly. So we're going to give you the opportunity that we can celebrate with you. If you're in the balcony or family room, walk through the door, go down the stairs. Uh, Get out from where you're seated. Just stand right up here. It will only take a moment. You can hear by the encouragement that we're excited you made this decision. That's right. If you saw somebody raise their hand, say, let me stand with you. Even if you didn't raise your hand, but you know that God has been speaking to you. You get up. You come.
Come and stand right up here in the front. That's right. So awesome. God bless you. That's right. It'll take you just a moment. It's just a few steps. And it's something you'll never regret. You've walked in and out of a lot of places in your life. You've taken many different steps. You make sure that you make this step. And that you make the first steps in following Him. Anybody else? We're going to give you just another moment. those of you who have come, there's a, there's a bunch of you, and I love seeing every one of you, and more coming even. Awesome. Good choice. Welcome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead you in a prayer. So I'm going to say a prayer out loud, and I'm going to ask you to say this prayer out loud. Come on. I'm glad you're here. Come on. Let's try to scoot in here just a little bit. Just a little bit. So, nobody else can hear us. It's just us. Okay? So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I'm going to ask you to say this prayer out loud. Sort of like vows at a wedding. They say it out loud in front of people. So, But you're praying to the Lord. You're giving the Lord your life. You're giving Him the keys to your life. You're saying, you take over. So I'm going to pray. You pray after me, but you say these words from your heart. Say them to the Lord who is listening. Let's pray. Say, Lord, I give you my life. I admit I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe in Jesus Christ. That he came from heaven to earth. That he shed his blood on a cross. That he rose again from the dead. I turn from my sin. I turn to Jesus as my Savior. I want to follow him as my Lord. Help me. In his name I pray. Amen. Jesus said that our names are written in heaven because we've been born again. Does this fact encourage you to share your faith with others? Let us know. Email us at mystory@calvaryabq.org. And just a reminder, you can give financially to this work at calvaryabq.org. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.